Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein policy directors Kate McCandless and Drew Littman, with policy advisor Laura Johnson, join strategic advisor Mark Begich to discuss the latest healthcare issues in Washington, including ACA stabilization efforts again falling short, where these efforts wind up in the wake of potential premium increases leading up to the 2018 midterm elections and the regulatory patchwork playing out as states seek both Medicaid expansion and 1332 waivers. The team also offers their insights into the administration's announcement on drug pricing and the likelihood of legislative or administrative action. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. Today we're talking about healthcare and we're joined by three folks from the Brownstein team that are well versed in the healthcare arena. First, we'll uh, introduce them and then we'll get right into the issues because there's uh, plenty on the dock. It seems like healthcare never goes away and there's always something brewing out there on this at some point. So, first, Kate McCandless, uh, policy director, is Brownstein's go to advocate for healthcare clients. Over the course of her career, Kate has represented and advised clients across the healthcare spectrum and with regard to federal health care programs and policies. Policy advisor Laura Johnson advocates on behalf of an array of health care and education interests. Prior to Brownstein, Laura worked on several Democratic political campaigns and started her political career on the Health and Education, Labor, and Pension Committee under Chairman Ted Kennedy. Drew Lippman, policy director, developed an expertise in healthcare after serving as senior counsel to Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Matthews Burwell. He also served as policy director, Senator Barbara Boxer, and as Senator Al Franken's chief of staff. Again, for all three of you, thank you. You're always great on this issue, and uh, we have a lot of clients and a growing part of our practice in Brownstein around healthcare. So this is always of interest to people. We know that. Let's first start, and, and Laura, I'm going to ask you to give us w- what is going on with Alexander Murray. It was up, then it was down, then it was up, then it's gone. Now, is there life breathing anywhere here or what's happening? So whether or not there's life, I think it's still uh, TBD. You know, I think that the general theory so was that the... you have to use all the... these healthcare terms, yeah. right? <laughs> so. It's on uh, life support for sure. Yeah, there we go. Um, so I think that the you know the omnibus spending package that passed last Friday because um, that was the, where the hope was right that was the last you know kind of big uh, big opportunity for for it to pass um, despite the threats from the president that he was going to veto the the entire package um, you know but I think that the the politics of ACA stabilization really sunk this deal getting done um, you know in the Senate. Patty Murray and Lamar Alexander had been negotiating on a good faith basis over the past six or seven months to try and stabilize the individual insurance market. And that's the crux of this, right? Yes. Uh, You know, to try and and stymie some of the premium increases that are are anticipated for, for 2019. But, you know, the politics in the House have been much trickier. A lot of House Republicans don't want to be seen as taking actions that prop up the the ACA or Obamacare. Um, And at the end of the day, um, the Republicans um, coalesced around a plan that included abortion restriction language, so-called Hyde Amendment language. Mm -hmm. um, And it was dead on arrival for Democrats. Which ACA never had that. In there, there was this uh, Representative Stupik, I think. Right. Yeah, had his own little kind of quirky language in there, but there was never the Hyde Amendment. Right. 
pushed into the ACA. It was one of the areas that didn't, wasn't allowed. Right. And the crucial point there is that Democrats would not want the Hyde Amendment to apply to private insurance plans, right. which is what would have happened here. Th- that's really the dividing point, because Democrats have lived with it with respect to government-funded government funded programs directly, but not private insurance plans. And in some states, big states like California and New York, Private insurers are required to cover abortion. Right. So if the House had gotten, Republicans had gotten their way in terms of the language, all of the plans in those states would have ceased to qualify for As premium ACA. subsidies gotcha. under the Affordable Care Act. Right. That's, a, that's millions and millions of insurance policies. So go ahead, Laura. Well, and so one of the things that the Republicans were pushing for throughout this negotiation was so-called uh, flexibility for states in the through the 1332 waiver process. Um, and I think that that became less of a, a demand for them because the administration has already been acting, you know, through the regulatory process, you know, through the association health plan proposed rule and the short term limited duration rule to to kind of, you know, make the some of the state regulations a little bit looser so that they don't have to abide by some of the essential health benefit um, rules under the ACA. You know, here we are, April almost, and the elections are coming at the end of the year. People have already started to put their packages, the insurance companies have put their packages together on pricing. And I'm sure, because I, I know this for, for a fact with some, they created two pricing mechanisms. One is if this occurred and if it did not, because it could not submit to their state regulators one plan. And then if the federal government didn't come through, they'd be stuck holding the bag. So they created two in most cases, and they're in that process now. Um, but come... October, all the rates will be out there. It doesn't look like, based on what Laura just said, there's, I mean, probably between now and October, this isn't coming up. And, I mean, you got an August break, you got an election year, you got September coming around the corner. You know, here we are on, you know, Easter break. I mean, the, the time is not there. So, what do you think happens this fall with states who are, you know, they many, I know in my state, uh, we saw a reduction last year of 26%, which some of us who were in office at the time said this would happen sooner or later. You'd start seeing some benefit. But now you have this fragile undercurrent of the, the lack of protection on these subsidies. So what, what, what happens? Here? Well, I think, you know, Alaska saw uh, that decrease partially because of the acceptance of their 1332 waiver. Right. Um, and they so they, they are able to uh, to operate their state insurance plan in the way that they uh, see the most benefit for Alaskans. And uh-huh. so I think that um, I don't believe that there are plans right now that are facing the same considerations that they faced last year, where we didn't know if the administration was going to pay the CSRs. And so subsequently, they were able to file two separate sets of rates. Uh-huh. I do think that internally, there are a lot of conversations happening within these companies about what happens if the administration continues, as Laura said, to uh, accept state waivers or to uh, give their blessing to plans that perhaps are a little bit cheaper, a Mm -hmm. little bit less, with a little bit less coverage. And so what are their offerings going to look like if they are allowed to offer those types of plans? Mm -hmm. So I I think it's a little less about what the administration is going to do to infuse uh, the Obamacare system with with money and more about, you know, how much regulation are are they going to be held 
hold to in the fall. And that's, I think, the key to the premium increases. If if the administration begins to accept plans that have less uh, less coverage um, or that aren't compliant with the essential health benefits that, as we know them now, if the association health plan rule allows for the expansion of uh, you know small business plans in a large group uh, market, then I think you'll start to see plans uh, offering uh, uh, products for people that are more affordable. Mm-hmm. If not, I think you'll see in the fall some pretty big shocking rate increases uh, that could swing or change uh, elections in some areas. You you would think, and, and Drew, I, I'm thinking about the House right now, you know, they've been usually the group that has been anti, uh, the, the majority, the anti-Obamacare, uh, ACA, and you'd almost think that here you have a potential of dramatic rate hikes they're at risk of losing the house. They've all acknowledged that that's a high risk right now without this issue. Now they compound it. It almost seems like you'd want to f- fix this problem before uh, November, or they could not only lose their majority, but lose by a little larger margins than they thought because this is an October you and, know, and, issue. And one way this plays out, to talk in crass political terms, uh, conveniently for Democrats, is that in states where there would be large premium increases, if Republican incumbents' main talking point is the tax cuts, mm-hmm. Democrats will say, "Is yeah, but you're paying for an increased premium, so net you're not getting any cut at all. So, so that, that nullifies, I think, that important Republican talking point. I'd also note one of the most interesting developments is that you have red states that are putting Medicaid expansion on the ballot. And this feels a bit like, I think, 2014, where you had uh, red states. I hope not. I I remember that. Sorry. (laughs) I know know it resonates, but I know you you saw um, states that went by, say, 30 points for a Republican Senate candidate. Mm also legalized marijuana or raised the minimum wage to $12 or $15. So you've got Idaho and Utah have Medicaid expansion. Those are two very red states. And in Nebraska and Montana, there are serious efforts underway to put it under the ballots. So Kate made important points about how there may be a regulatory patchwork more than there is now as states seek, more states seek waivers. You've also got this activity that sort of adds to the overall ferment, but I think highlights the value of Medicaid in mm-hmm. a lot of places. I, I want to play off on one comment you made there, and this is uh, in my ever-continuing uh, effort to uh, expand my horizons and listen to lots of stuff. Uh, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh recently, and I know, that Drew, you're having some heartburn right now, but um, here's what was interesting. It was just before the president was trying to figure out, is he going to veto the omnibus or not, every single commentary that came on air, people calling in to Rush Limbaugh's show, was disappointment in the president not taking a stand on that. Mm-hmm. But two callers, very specific about health care. Now, remember, this is a Rush Limbaugh audience, Republican conservative, said, I, I appreciate the $25. They actually had, each one had a number, they said, $25 or whatever it was. Every two weeks, I'm getting tax relief. But my health care has gone up. So it's an interesting dynamic that if you now uh, accelerate that conversation in a way, that individual who all of them acknowledge they were Trump supporters, but now they feel this a little bit over here, but a lot being taken out over here. So it's an interesting dynamic. And if you're 
you know, and when you said crass politics, well, this is Washington, D.C. I mean, this is part of the system. And you think of the House members, leadership especially, they, they have to be nervous about how this plays because you can really narrow cast it into these House races. You bet. So. Well, no, I think that's right. Um, you know, I was I was speaking with a, a moderate House Republican recently who said, you know, ex- expressed his frustration uh, around, you know, some of these blocks of very conservative Republicans who just seem to not be able to get to yes um, on on anything here. But I think that what most of the Republican leadership is looking at, and it's what we just discussed, is, you know, what are the opportunities in the states to stabilize the insurance market? I mean, let's not forget, we have repealed the individual mandate, right? right? So there is no longer uh, a a mandate for an American to have health insurance, or or there will not be. And so, you know, subsequently, there's not a forced fee on Mm. anyone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people certainly want to continue to have health insurance. They can and they will. Um, but hopefully there will be products available to them that meet their needs. And that's really, at this point, a state issue. The states have to determine what their populations need and want, and then they have to apply for these waivers. And it looks like the administration, with the, the exception of Idaho, which I think is a technical correction, and they'll, they'll resubmit, um, the administration is interested, exactly, is interested in moving these proposals forward. So to Laura's point about sort of the, the central tenet of the stabilization package for Senator Alexander being you know, state flexibility – we are already seeing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, it's likely that we will see places that have rate increases in the fall. But I also think that you know, Republican leadership in the House is looking at the states where they know that they have Republican majorities, Republican governors even, and they are looking for places to, uh, you know, to, to slim down some mm-hmm. of the requirements so that those individuals can get relief. Let me ask you this question. Maybe, Laura, do, do we really need now, Murray? Alexander, based on that, I mean, do we? I mean, they, it was a national concept, right? Their their proposal to solve a problem, but maybe now because the way this administration is working with these waivers, is it necessary? I think the insurers would say yes, it yes. is. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just, as I was asking the question, I was answering it. I think in my mind that wait a second, there is one group that would say yes and underline in capitals with exclamation, probably. Yes. Let me shift to another topic, which always, and it seems like. The president talks about this. There's some little bit of movement, but it's almost like it starts and then it kind of disappears and it's on drug pricing or lowering pricing or generic drugs. Um, what is the next step here? Is it is it that there will be more issues within uh, the regulatory end that helps create more generics on the market or lowering prices or creating competition? Or is Congress going to take a role here, which they seem to always struggle with? Because it's really not a Democrat or Republican issue on drug pricing. It's geographic. Where, where are these drugs made? Where are these companies located? And it's always this combination that's hard to explain. But the general public seems, anytime you bring up drug pricing, they want them lower and they want more choices. I mean, it's not a complicated. I mean, when you ask the question, polling data, it seems like it's a consistent uh, issue. So, where do you think it's going to go, Kate? Where, where, where is this issue in the world of healthcare today? Well, the president has said that uh, within the next month we will have a major announcement um, <laughs> on drug pricing. It will, yes, it will be, be huge. huge. Um, and and Secretary Azar has has reiterated that point. Um, and it seems like he's trying, even though it, interesting people. Com- at first that, well, he comes from that industry. Why would he be interested? But it seems like he's actually, Trump picked him, what I understood, was because he knew the industry 
and knew where those opportunities were. He does. And so I think to your first point about will Congress get involved, I, I, I believe that the president and uh, and HHS are are well aware of the the breakup that you just described um, <laughs> that that happens in Congress geographically and politically over this issue, and and they are going to pursue uh, the the regulatory pathway on as many of these priorities as possible. I would say though that a bit of the untold story of the omnibus is uh, that there was the potential for several uh, pieces of of independent legislation that we have heard would lower drug prices, one of them being the uh, the infamous Creates Act, um, that uh, were, were offered up as you know potential pieces of the omnibus. Now, granted, they were offered to help pay for other things that the pharmaceutical industry wanted in return. But frankly, uh, you know, many people believe that legislation like the Creates Act, which would allow generic manufacturers uh, access to products so that they could, in fact, create a generic version of, of these branded drugs, mm-hmm. um, you know, that there's the, con- the the idea that this concept would lower drug prices. Uh, and so it was offered up to uh, the, the Four Corners leadership, Republicans and Democrats, and it was rejected. Now, there's a lot of finger pointing right now as to who ultimately said no. Um, but, you know, to be fair, there were as many Democrats in that room as there were Republicans, and they all said no. Right. So I, I think that it's important to, to note that um, as we look at a, a congressional schedule that seems to, as you said, be getting shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's really room for um, for there to be a lot of, of legislation in this area. But I do think, as you said, there's going to be a lot of activity on the regulatory front. You know, the Council of Economic Advisors last month put out their report on drug pricing and ways to lower it. And many, many of those uh, alternatives were, were regulatory. There were things that the administration could continue to pursue on their own. But I think, you know, overall, the president's threat of doing something has held since the beginning of his election, right. of his campaign, quite frankly. That's and, what he's talked about ever since. And there have been some minor industry-driven changes. Mm-hmm. So, for example, United Health, and then just today, Aetna, has announced that they are going to pass on their rebates directly to their right. consumers. So the rebates that they are getting from manufacturers or from, from wholesalers when they're purchasing the drugs, they're going to give them directly to the consumer. And they're going to hopefully... Uh, you know, show some transparency in the process mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever their talking points are. But they didn't have to do that. Right. They didn't. There's no regulation that's forcing them to do that. And there's no legislation that's forcing them to do that. So they are, in fact, being influenced, I think, by the statements of the president and the polling that you mentioned where, you it's know, Americans popular. want to see this. Yeah, they want to I see a benefit. If the president really were a master negotiator, as Kate said, this doesn't break down precisely as a, all Republicans on one side, all Democrats on the right. other side kind of issue. Geographically, as you noted, there there you shift around. So the president really would have an opportunity to pull people together, create interesting coalition, create interesting coalitions that maybe result in a legislative response, maybe result in a regulatory response, but that he can stand up with ten R's and ten D's at a press conference and tout. He'd have a lot of opportunity mm-hmm. to claim victory, I think, but. The White House doesn't operate that efficiently, and he doesn't stay focused right. in that way. Because, again, like there was an opportunity on immigration, because the D's and R's were sort of mixed on immigration, there would be an opportunity on drug pricing. And I think drug pricing is, again, it's popular. I mean, in the sense of lowering that cost and making sure people know that they're not paying more than they should for a product that they believe should be much lower in pricing. In other words, 
right I, or wrong. But I think that you know that that's the that's the unfortunate dichotomy of the drug pricing debate, right? Everybody wants them to be affordable, but everybody also wants access to every single treatment, mm-hmm. even those that aren't yet FDA approved for their right. condition. You know, so it doesn't break down in a very clean way, even for the American public. And mm-hmm. if you tell people that making sure, you know, putting price controls on the pharmaceutical industry and making sure that these drugs don't cost more than you, quote, think they should cost right, is going the... to restrict access. We're going, that that's going to mean that people are not going to have access to all of the drugs that are available because you'll have to create strict formularies in order to, to maintain those price controls. And then beyond that, the, the industry is not going to have the capital and the investment to go out and research all of these new drugs and these new molecules, these new conditions. So, And especially when it only could affect a small, very small population and the research that's required to, to, to assist in that is enormous. And the population may not have the economic ability to pay for all that. That's right. That's They're, part of it. Now, you have to worry more about the capital markets, I think. That's a larger, that's almost a macroeconomic question. If there are all these restrictions, you lose investment money, and that, that precedes customers paying for a product. You won't have as many products, it, theoretically, but I think it's a sound theory. You won't have as many products developed, or they won't be developed as quickly. And you, that's a trade-off that you have to consider. And some of the programs that are out there now under the Orphan Drug Act that act as incentives for uh, for these companies, in fact, to, to research in rare diseases, and for investors to invest in companies mm-hmm. that are researching in rare diseases are being uh, examined, I guess is a good way to look at it. GAO is going to do an orphan drug report later this year at the request of uh, of Chairman Grassley, I believe. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the market reacts to changes in the uh, in the investment structure of these pharmaceutical companies that are, many of them are very small. They're looking into rare diseases. You know, there are thousands of rare diseases that don't have any treatments at all. And and we have to incentivize these companies to, to make an investment there. Laura? Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this issue plays out in the 2018 campaign. Um, I saw some interesting polling from Kaiser Health last week that uh, 72% of uh, the, the polling sample found that pharmaceutical companies had too much influence over members of Congress. By comparison, 52%, uh, they said 52% of Americans said that the NRA has too much influence. <laughs> so, um, so pharmaceuticals so, yes, have more, more influence, influence than, than the NRA, NRA. Which is amazing because the topic of today. Yeah. But only 39% said that they had confidence that the Trump administration would be able to actually do something about lowering drug prices. You know, Laura, you bring up a good point. This is what I see, you know, from just the politics of the issue. It's a very popular issue because there's frustration. And I think, Kate, you made the comment and I made the comment, too, that it's not necessarily always based in reality of what they think the prices are or what they should be. It's just that's, hey, I believe it is what I believe. And it's because they see the pharmaceutical companies very active politically, and therefore they make the connection that they must someone's not getting someone's getting the bad end of this in, in their mind. And in reality, there's a lot of pieces to drug pricing. Everything from the amount of investment the federal government makes in the National Institute of Health, especially for stage one and two development, and then how universities actually play in all this, because a lot of people forget they're a big part of this equation in research. Then you have capital markets that say, well, you know, if you're going to restrict why would I invest when I can go put my money elsewhere? Then you have companies that are trying to do these unique drugs that are very small population to solving these bigger ones. So it's not as simple as people think, but the polling data, which is very interesting as in recent, um, shows what the American people think. And one thing we know about the Trump administration, that they pay attention to that kind of information in the sense of 
that's what they think, so therefore we need to respond. I'd Not consider, fact-based I'd, all the time, but enough. I'd consider also that, that Facebook had a big setback, uh, uh, rolling setbacks over the last couple of weeks. Their market value dropped some, by something like $75 billion in a week. Right. And, and you see how quickly investors can turn on companies or an industry or a technology, especially where the technology is murky and not fully understood. Because a right. lot of these investments in drug companies are based on faith. The capital markets don't really necessarily understand what's involved in bringing the next biotech product to market. They can't. So you could see how, depending on how things got rolled out, money could flee from from pharmaceutical companies. I think you're right, though. I think that restrictions on tech are a little bit easier to game plan, and the market can see that. I think that, you know, to your point, not knowing what the answer is on drug pricing Mm -hmm. keeps the investment flowing, at least for now, because while we all can agree it's a problem, nobody can agree on the solution. Right. Mm -hmm. So it creates still opportunity. Yes. Let me um, close our conversation with this to all three of you. Kind of what do you see as, you know, we're moving down the path. We've talked about a few issues that are still going to be bubbling out there, but is there anything, any surprises that we think in the healthcare arena that we know is coming and we, we're going to have to deal with it, but maybe there isn't? Um, is there any surprises or something that we know is coming, Drew? I think that, that the ongoing interest in dealing with the opioid crisis mm-hmm. will drive up support for Medicaid, even in red states, because that's really, to the extent people are getting treatment, Predominantly, it's from Medicaid. And and that argues in favor of Medicaid expansion in markets where otherwise people would be hostile. If you called it Obamacare, people mm-hmm. would be very hostile. So I think that hasn't fully played out. That's so going to play out further. opioid care. Opioid, essentially, yes. That's exactly, if you want to wean off with naloxone or something like that, if you don't have Medicaid, you're out of luck. Yeah. What do you think, Kate Laura? Anything that you see on the horizon that's just... We need a flag, not only for us here, but for our clients, and just in general with the... Well, I'm watching with great interest this uh, Amazon dipping its toe into healthcare mm. with uh, mm. with Berkshire Hathaway and, and J.P. Morgan. I think um, you that know that is a big deal. Mm-hmm. I, you know, yeah. I, I just recently was able to order from uh, Amazon Now, where I could get my Whole Foods delivered in two hours. Uh, it was pretty spectacular, <laughs> and, I, and I started to think, you know, I, I don't want to hand over my entire life to Amazon, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit how many Amazon boxes come to my house every day. <laughs> but, um, but realistically, you know, this could really change things if they are able to uh, really drive economies of scale in the way they have with all of their other marketing. So I think I'm, I'm watching with uh, great interest to see what they're going to, uh, how just, they're going to affect I just market. always have to go to the grocery store because I want to see the lettuce <laughs> I'm getting. I want to know there's Do nothing... you feel that way about filling your prescriptions, though? No. Good point. Good point. <laughs> Laura, you, don't, you don't learn anything new at that drive-in window, I that's can tell right. you. Laura, anything that you see on the horizon that may be um, so I'm watching? constantly uh, interested in kind of the consolidation in the healthcare markets, whether it's CVS, mm. Aetna, and kind of how the, the regulators are going to, uh, you know, treat some of these these mergers and acquisitions and, and how the how that impacts healthcare costs for patients. It's a good point because in the telecom industry, they really start to really focus on those mergers because the consolidation is creating 
consumer issues exactly. or, or presumed consumer. It depends how you look at it, but it's definitely. Monthly cable bill makes it a very easy way to focus right. on Right, and everyone gets one at some point. I mean, I just got called by my Alaska cable company, matter of fact, last night to say, we're combining your two bills, and I'm always suspicious of what that <laughs> means. <laughs> because I, you know, and so, of course, I'm going to call them today. Um, but in the healthcare arena, merging of all that, and then also you have this other growth that's occurring of companies joining together outside of the insurance and mm-hmm. the self-insured types saying, what are we going to do here? Which is also an interesting part of this equation. So, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, it, it, if you watch the House Judiciary uh, Committee hearing on the CVS Aetna merger, not that everybody has a lot of free time like that. But, say, um, <laughs> but if this you com- is why people come to us, that's right, Brown that's right. because we I are focused on the, these. I watched the hearing. Um, if you compare that to uh, an oversight hearing on some of the telecom mergers, Comcast, for example, ATT, yeah. it, it, there's a stark difference. Yeah. Um, many people, I think, are, uh, are, are concerned enough about healthcare access and costs in the United States that they are willing to try things. They are willing to let these move forward forward, right. hoping that they will contain cost. And you could just see a marked difference. Next year, we'll be talking about the Amazon Aetna merger, probably, and you'll be <laughs> ordering your meds through your Amazon Fire TV exactly. stick, and it'll be right up there on the screen. There we go. More boxes at my house. <laughs> you, you, you leave us with a lot on our, our inner thoughts to all three of you, Laura and Kate and Drew. Thank you all very much for being here. Once again, always interesting around healthcare and what's happening. It never ends that we always have something to talk about. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.